things fall apart and solar powered lamps that are built for people who live without electricity also fall apart after a period of time. When they stop working, the claims that get made for them also fall apart. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for The Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. Solar energy has been envisioned as a groundbreaking innovation for regions with no electricity. But what happens when solar gadgets break down? In today's episode, we travel to Scotland to talk to Jamie Cross, a researcher at the University of Edinburgh, whose team has developed Solar Watt, a modular and repairable solar lamp. We talk about solar lamp lifetimes, their use in sub-Saharan Africa and India, and the importance of designing for repairability and keeping our lamps working for longer. You will also hear some clips from participants at one of our London Restart Parties, which are regular repair events run by the Restart Project. My name's Jamie Cross. I'm a social anthropologist here at the University of Edinburgh. I teach in the Department of Social Anthropology. I teach undergraduates, master's students, and I also do research on low-carbon energy transitions in the global south. Over the last six years, my research here has really been looking at how low-carbon renewable energy technologies get used and mobilised in places without access to mains electricity, mostly in South Asia, but also more recently in sub-Saharan Africa. As a social anthropologist, what I'm really interested in is both the ways in which people adapt to and use new kinds of technical systems, new kinds of technologies, but also the ways in which new kinds of technologies are made available to people and what the expansion of markets for particular kinds of consumer products and devices really means, what kinds of claims might be made for new goods and what kinds of compromises might be made as markets expand really rapidly. If you travel around parts of rural India, parts of rural Uganda, Burkina Faso, in places where there's no mains electricity, invariably you're going to come across small scale, small, tiny little torches, lamps that people use after dark. Your generic battery torch, a big LED device with lots of little kind of LEDs and powered by batteries. But over the last 10 years, in those same kinds of contexts, increasingly you'll also encounter a different kind of device, a small LED lantern powered by a solar panel. They're exactly the same kind of things that you can find in Tesco's or in camping shops in the UK. Emergency lamps, camping lamps, often a big hunk of plastic with a handle, some kind of transparent casing, LEDs inside, rechargeable batteries somewhere underneath and off the side uh, an external or built-in solar module. And those things have over the last decade become really ubiquitous around the world. You can find them not just in places of rural poverty, but you can also find them being distributed in humanitarian emergencies. So after the series of earthquakes in Nepal a couple of years ago after typhoons in the Philippines in the aftermath of hurricanes in Puerto Rico exactly the same kinds of devices are being distributed today the light that comes off a tiny little solar lantern is deemed to be the most basic artificial illumination that is necessary to meet human need for lighting. That's actually not just a general definition, but it's actually written into a series of international protocols for dealing with and addressing energy poverty. So the UN Sustainable Development Goals really take access to solar-powered lighting as the first step on the ladder from energy poverty to something else. Access to solar-powered lighting is the first tier, if you like, of energy access. And that 
Acts has given organisations around the world a mandate to not just manufacture and produce, but also distribute small solar lighting devices to people and has given a mandate to businesses. own any solar chargers or solar products and if you do what is the quality like we do have a phone solar charger that we take on holidays and traveling with us it's okay it takes a while to recharge let's say a phone but it's okay we've got the solar water heater on our roof so when it's sunny that heats the water that goes into our water system so we don't need the boiler on to heat the water really good in summer less good in winter but yeah quality is fantastic the water gets super hot i do i own a solar battery bank for my mobile phone which charges with normal sunlight and seems to work reasonably well if it's charged to begin with if i go on a camping trip i charge it before i go when my phone runs out of battery power i plug it into this brick thing and it recharges my phone but if i were to start it from a solar charge it's not that effective a few years ago the british museum had an exhibition called A History of the World in 100 Objects. And the object that was chosen as the 100th object was a small solar-powered lamp and charger that was designed and built for people living without electricity in the developing world, in parts of sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. And I've got one of those here. And it's a square-shaped device. It's the one in the British Museum is green. It's got a handle on the top. It's got a square piece of plastic on the front with a bright LED behind it. It's got a little socket on the side so you can plug in and charge a mobile phone. And that particular object has a story to it. It's not a generic object. It's a really particular one. It was built and designed by a group of graduate students at Stanford University in the US who were really successful both in raising investment for the thing that they'd built and designed and for really promoting it and promoting the story behind it and connecting this small lamp to a story about the transformation of livelihoods and people's experience of light in places without electricity. One of the places where the 100th object was originally tested is a small village called Badwas in Uttar Pradesh in North India. A few years ago I actually visited the village of Badwas us and spoke to people who had been there when the company that uh, designed and built the the 100th object delight design went and did some of their original trials spoke to a young guy who at the time was about 17 and one night was working with his dad in a tailoring shop just in the middle of the village and remembers the occasion when a couple of people he'd never seen before had never seen before in the village stopped at the tailoring shop and asked him if he would be interested in something that they said was going to change his life forever and until then him and his dad had been using this petromax lantern this gas powered light which was costly to run and gave off a smell but was their principal source of lighting in the shop after dark. These two people arrived and suggested that they might have something that would change their life and would mean they'd never have to use their gas lantern again. And they took out of their bag this green solar-powered lamp, which is the 100th object sitting in the British Museum. Over the next couple of weeks, with the, the tailor and his son and other people in the village, they invited people to become test users, giving people prototype lanterns, inviting them to take them back to their home, use them for a little bit, write down how they use them, 
them, what happened to them, and where they put the thing to charge, what they did with it, describe what they thought were the benefits of it. People came to record them, to take photographs of them, to listen to what they had to say, to capture video of them using it in particular contexts. And the story of the ways in which people in the village of Baduas used this solar lantern became a really important part of the company's marketing materials and promotional materials as they tried to really make the case for how their solar lamp was going to transform people's lives. At that time, people in the village were really receptive, really responsive to the technology. Lots of people remember seeing it for the first time and described being convinced by its capacities, what it was going to do, and loving it. A few months later, people from the company came back to the village and invited some of the original trial participants to buy a lamp of their own at a low cost and um, made it more widely available. And in fact, one of the original test users in that village became a, a local salesperson, eventually cycling around the district selling these lamps to other villagers. When I went back to Baduas five years after a company had originally gone there, I came up against a different kind of story though. None of the lamps that had been sold or been distributed there were still working in the way that the company had intended. Over that five-year period, the villagers who lived there had come up against a whole range of different material challenges. The stuff just wasn't working. Switches had got stuck or broken. Batteries had reached the end of their charging cycle and had stopped working. And people found it really difficult to fix their lamps. They literally often couldn't get into them. The hundredth object that's in the British Museum is incredibly difficult to take apart. The screws are really deeply embedded in the plastic casing. And even if you could get them out, you'd have to kind of prise the actual casing apart. In many cases, actually risk breaking the casing altogether. Then when you get inside, you discover that the lithium-ion battery was very difficult to prise apart from the electronic circuitry. And if you wanted to replace the battery itself, uh, you might again risk actually damaging some of the internal electronics. What I found really challenging about that story was that here you had this technology which had so much promise attached to it which was being distributed in a place of really chronic energy poverty as a solution to these challenges challenges of underdevelopment challenges of a lack of access to electricity and that really promised to change people's lives and yet there were some really fundamental questions about the technology itself that you had these things that were really difficult to repair and maintain in the village of Baduas people had gone to local towns looking for replacement switches tried to find replacement batteries but really struggled to repair their devices. And so instead had begun to do other things with them, had innovated, had begun to find their own workarounds and fixes. In North India, people sometimes use a word, jugaad, which is a Hindi and Urdu word that's used to describe coming together of local solutions and material things, technologies and stuff. So it's a kind of word that's often used to talk about improvisation and localised solutions to material challenges. People in Baduas joked that they'd been doing jugaad with this solar lamp, that they actually found their own workarounds and solutions. Some of those included actually ripping out the lithium-ion battery and attaching the lamp to a car battery or to a bigger system so they could keep using the LED but run it through something else. Some people had it connected to a battery that was charged via the mains. The people there got electricity. At that time, probably twice a week, you could guarantee there was going to be power to the village. And so if you were able to charge a battery during that time, you could guarantee that the lamp would continue to run. Of course, it was not then a solar-powered lamp. It was just a chargeable lamp that was being charged through the mains. Other people had ripped off the panel altogether and completely discarded the actual lamp and were just using the panel as a mobile phone charging device and had found some components in a local market where they could just rig up the panel directly to the mobile phone bypassing the connector in the lamp itself altogether. That story in Baduas is replicated everywhere that you find these devices. <laughs> So 
solar lamps have different kinds of lifetimes and many of the companies that manufacture and sell them will claim or promise that their products will last two years or five years. That may be true for some products or a selection of products in a product range, but those kinds of ideal lifetimes aren't often factoring in the wear and tear that something has when it's actually in use, the context in which they're actually being used. A lifetime of two to five years in a laboratory makes sense, but a lifetime of two to five years when it's rubbling around in somebody's home, being used inside, outside, by children grown-ups, a whole range of different people, that lifetime might look quite different. There are also a wide range of different products that you can find across sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. And the lifetime of some products might push into that two to five year period, but there are many products that don't. So the people who've been building and designing these technologies have often done huge amounts of research in the context where they might be used. So people have paid attention to the ways in which people might hold these things, where they might hang them in their homes, how they might be actually used on a day-to-day basis. People have listened to what the end users, consumers of these things have to say about their needs and aspirations, some of their colours, the fact that they've actually got mobile phones charging is actually a testament to some of the the research that's gone into them. But what I find really interesting is that, and maybe this is because people haven't been able to focus on these things over a longer period of time, or because the kinds of pressures that the manufacturer of one of these things might find themselves under as they try and rapidly increase a market for them, is that they don't focus on what happens when they stop working. It's very difficult to tell a story to an investor if you're trying to get investment into your company that, well, you know, we're going to sell these things to people in developing countries, they're going to change people's lives, but oh, by the way, we also want to make sure that they can fix them when they break. And the investor will be like, what do you mean when they break or stop working? You know, the story about repair isn't one that gets designed into the product themselves. And of course, some of that is about a desire to sustain markets as well. If you design full repair, you're also presuming that at some point somebody's going to want to fix what they've already got rather than buy something else to replace it. And exactly the same kind of dynamics that we see at play in the electronics industry in the UK and in Europe and for high-end products like headphones or mobile phones, the conversation around that just takes for granted that companies are building things for obsolescence in order to try and get us to buy more things. But we don't always imagine that those same kind of dynamics are going to be at play in really, really poor markets in places where people have got no access to electricity and where the thing you're talking about is supposed to just transform people's lives and provide them with access to light, a really, really basic energy service. So I find it really shocking and really affronting that actually exactly the same kind of dynamics are at play in those markets. And also that people who have really good intentions and have been driven by a real desire to change the world and to make people's lives better, do that without really attending to and really reflecting on the underlying politics of what happens when stuff breaks. Current estimates have it at somewhere between 1.2 and 1.5 billion people who live without access to mains electricity. Those figures are changing as countries around the world invest in electrification, as new kinds of grid connections come online, as grid infrastructures expand. But those people who live without access to mains electricity are often people who also can't afford the cost of actually buying some alternative systems. So people who don't have money to buy generators or often don't have money to invest in larger decentralized solar home systems. So these small solar lamps are really intended often for the poorest of the poor. They're supposed to be affordable. Sometimes they cost between 9 and $18 and the financial arrangements for them vary. If you're a family living in the middle of rural India and you've just invested in a small solar lamp because the people who sold it to you said that it was going to reduce your monthly expenditure on kerosene, 
which was what you were previously buying every month to light your little kerosene lantern at home and you bought this solar lamp then you'd expect that to keep working and if the lamp stops working for one reason or another or if it stops actually being useful you've either got to go back and spend money on kerosene again or you've got to invest money in actually trying to get the thing fixed and the costs of repair for people are sometimes considerable a year ago we actually ran a survey in Odisha a state in India with a very high percentage of people who live off the grid, who don't have access to mains electricity, and where energy poverty correlates with other kinds of social exclusion. So people who live without electricity in Odisha are more likely to be people of low caste or people who belong to Adivasi or tribal communities. We ran a survey of over a thousand households where people had previously been sold or had been given small-scale solar lighting systems. And what we found was that over a quarter of systems after two years were not working. When people were confronted with something that wasn't working, they tried to fix it. The significance or importance of the technology was really evidenced by the fact that people, when they had something that was broken, they really did try and fix it. Something like three quarters of people who had something that was broken had sought out different pathways to repair. Either they try to fix it themselves, so they try to take a solar lamp apart, try to fiddle around with the wires or see what was wrong, see what they could do with it. Or they try and take it to somebody that they knew locally, a neighbour, somebody who lived in their vicinity who might be able to fix it. But if they couldn't do anything with it there, they'd travel further away to try and fix it somewhere else. And what we found was that actually a really high percentage of people with these broken small solar lamps travelling really long distances to try and get it repaired, sometimes over 20 kilometres, which is a really considerable distance for such a basic entry-level device, a little solar lamp, and also an incredible cost. If you've got to travel for 20 kilometres, that's 20 kilometres there, 20 kilometres back, that's a day, and a day when you're not working, a day when you're not possibly earning, unless you've got to travel to town backwards and forwards to attend a market or to go and sell something or for some other reason. But also we found that because the places that they were going to try and fix things often didn't have the components or parts that were required to actually fix the thing that they were taking, they had to take repeat journeys. Sometimes people would travel two times or three times to go and get something fixed. They'd take something, drop it off and have to go again the following week or two weeks later to go and pick it up. And so the actual costs on end users, people who were already living in considerable poverty, the cost of actually keeping something working over a long period of time, because the company that had built and designed it hadn't really designed for longevity, hadn't really thought about access to spare parts and the supply of parts components over that long period of time. The burden on the user or consumer was incredibly high. And again, that just seemed like such a paradox for a technology that was designed precisely to alleviate poverty and was intended for people who are living in those conditions. How important is repairability when you buy products? To me, it's extremely important. The difficulty I find as a consumer is finding products that are repairable. And I'll give you an example, which we run into regularly at these restarter sessions. The restarter sessions he's referring to are called restart parties, community repair events to fix electronics. People often bring in toasters for us to repair But in a low-cost toaster, there is practically nothing inside that can be fixed. The electrical elements, for example, are permanently wired into the body of the toaster. It was not designed to be fixable. The only toaster I've found that is easily fixable is a dual-it unit that starts at a minimum of about £200 per toaster. So it's a question of whether I'm willing, as a consumer, to invest more in something with the knowledge that it at least can be repaired over its lifetime it's a tough choice 
Uh, I think it's really, really important. I have got through a lot of headphones recently, and I'm really sick of getting through headphones that should be an easily repairable thing. I think things should be built to last. Some things obviously a bit more kind of, they're going to take more of a pounding in your everyday life, and those things should be repairable. Yeah, it makes no sense to put the, the energy and the time into a new thing if there is still the opportunity to, to repair it. I'd want almost all my stuff to be repairable. I think repairability is extremely important and I find it actually quite sad that things aren't generally built to last these days. Certainly for our job, e-waste is quite a particular thing that we're looking into a lot. So I think the longer things last, the better. And if we can find a way to repair them, then that's fantastic. When I first started looking into these different lamps and started following them and started collecting them it became really apparent that there were different shapes and sizes many different companies producing these things and some very similar challenges but also some differences so a few years ago what we decided to do both as a way of collecting some of that information but also as a way of trying to prod manufacturers and their industry association to try and act or to be a bit more attentive to some of those issues was to put together a website where we collected details and information about them. So what we built was something called the off-grid solar scorecard. And I'm just going to bring it up on a computer screen here. You can see it at www.offgridsolarscorecard.com. It's a fairly straightforward product ranking rating sites just like you might find for other kinds of devices we developed a scoring system for scoring different kinds of solar lamps on the basis of their repairability recyclability and whether or not they had access to service and spare parts and really what that meant was that over several months we developed a fairly kind of systematic way of taking these things apart and examining the internal components what we looked for across each of these different things were clear markers of what made them repairable or not could the battery be replaced did the circuit board use surface mounted components or not could the product be disassembled without breaking how long did it actually take to disassemble it and could it actually be put back together again afterwards did the components include more than five soldered joints or adhesive joints did you need to use more than two tools to actually take it apart did it require specialist screwdrivers and was there actually any information available for you to actually take it apart and repair it what kind of access to information was there on the box or on the product itself or elsewhere we're also concerned with questions of how easy any of those parts were to recycle whether or not the plastics were labeled what kind of battery was used how many different kinds of plastics were actually being used and whether they were contaminated with glues or adhesives if they're contaminated you literally just can't recycle them whether the different components could be easily separated etc etc so we put together this set of questions which you could see and look through if you're interested on this site and then we over the last couple of years have collected data on about 80 different products which we've ranked and rated and given a grade to if the, the product scores really well it gets a, an a for being repairable or recyclable and it goes down to i think a grade e the intention of this site was both for ourselves to have a, a record of these things but also to try and demonstrate to manufacturers and to the, the off-grid solar industry that they were being scrutinized and that there were people who were really interested in how exactly these things were being designed <laughs> There are quite a lot of solar products for sale in the UK. How do solar products that we can buy here differ from those on sale in other regions of the world? They don't at all. They're exactly the same. Some of the things I've got around my room here, you can see that they actually say on the box, camping lights or emergency light. In fact, some of them have got little pictures of people in tents using them as well as them hanging outside their rooms. So they're exactly the same. In fact, some of the companies that 
build these things for the developing world, run campaigns online. You can buy one for yourself and have another one that is sent overseas or sent somewhere else. They're being marketed in both contexts, both locations. They might be sold here as camping lights, festival lights, but they're exactly the same. There's really nothing that differentiates it. The only thing that is different about them is the kind of claim which is being made for what they can do and how they're going to change people's lives. When they're sold to people in developing countries, they're being sold as devices that are going to transform people's lives, make them better, improve them, help people get access to education, help children study at night. They're going to improve the quality of air inside a home by reducing emissions from kerosene lighting or an oil-based fuel. And they're going to reduce people's expenditure by helping people save money from spending on kerosene or other kind of oil products. The life cycle, I would say, is also exactly the same. The products use the same kind of batteries so they're usually rechargeable lithium iron batteries but they have a charge cycle so they charge up they run down and they go through a series of different cycles but eventually the battery will have run through its usable life and will need to be replaced and the question of when that is depends on how frequently you use it if you bought a solar lamp in the uk for a festival and you only use it a couple of times a year it's probably going to last quite a long time if you bought a solar lamp in the middle of Burkina Faso and you're trying to use it every night, then likelihood is that the battery is going to run out much faster. And if you can't easily take out the battery from that device and change it, either because you can't find rechargeable lithium ion batteries on the local market or because you actually can't take the battery out of the device without ripping apart the electronics or actually damaging the device, then that's a bit of a problem. Right. And and who are the big players in selling these kind of products? And are the business models different? There's a company called Delight, Delight Design, which is a US company, which is one of the largest manufacturers and distributors of small off-grid solar lighting products in the developing world. There's Greenlight Planet, competitor equally dominant. They've got slightly different markets. There's a Dutch company, Waka Waka, named after Shakira's World Cup song, which is also prominent. There are a number of smaller players. There are also large companies like Philips or Total, which are producing their own products. We've got Barefoot, Green Horizons, um, a load of Chinese companies, JY Super, Illumat. But we've got companies more familiar, Panasonic. It's easier to have a conversation with or put pressure on companies that are based in the global north and who are selling in the global south than it is for companies that are based in, in other parts of the world. And so I think that you know, companies that are um, based in Europe, for example, we can hold them to account in particular ways for the kinds of design decisions they're making for things that are being sold elsewhere. The concern for rights to repair becoming more significant in in the UK and in Europe, it doesn't look like those things and those concerns are being translated into a discussion about the rights repair in the global south. So for companies that are based in Europe who are producing, manufacturing, selling technologies for consumers in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, one question is what is the implication of debates around the right to repair for people selling in those places? What is SolarWatt and how does it aim to change the current scenario? It's a, a small solar-powered lamp that has been designed explicitly so that it could be taken apart, repaired and kept in use for as long as possible. That sounds like a simple claim until you know you account for all the other things that we've been talking about this morning. Right. So um, I've got one in my hand here and this is one of the first of 30 early prototypes that were made at the end of last year. One of them has gone to the National Museum of Scotland. It was acquired by the museum as part of a collection of energy technologies types of technologies that were built and designed here in Scotland. 25 went to Zambia in a 
partnership with SolarAid, a UK charity that has been working to accelerate access to energy for people living in, in poverty across sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. For us, that was a really important partnership because it was the first opportunity we had to really take the thing we'd built and designed and see what people made of it in the context in which it was intended to be used. Obviously, the fieldwork and research that we'd done in many different countries and locations really fed into the design of the thing itself but that was the first time we had to actually take it somewhere where people could get their hands on it and we could see how it was being used to learn more about the use of solar watt in zambia we spoke to rowan spear the team's lead designer Rowan, you went to Zambia with these devices what would you like to say about doing that yeah so i was in zambia two weeks ago with SolarAid, as, as Jamie mentioned. And SolarAid have this great initiative called Light Libraries, where they take solar products, put them in a centralised location, such as a school, and the school takes ownership of them. The children there can rent out these products at a nominal price. In the case of Zambri, it's, it's 10 engwe, which is equivalent of, of one cent US dollars. They then take these lights, they take them home, for the evening, use them, their parents use them, they use them for study, etc. Bring them back in the day to be recharged. And what we've done is taken 25 of our solar watts and put them into this context to see whether they are received well, whether they work as we expect and intend, how they compare to other lights that people have come across. SolarAid contributed 25 of their SM100s to that light library as well. So how people engage with the two different products. And for us, it's that ability to do all of those things and field test our narrative as well so whilst i was out there i conducted a tear down workshop if you will of our own product and gave the 25 lights to the school children to a class of 84 children we all had screwdrivers and looked at the lights saw what we could see what we could recognize from the product took them apart learned a bit about what's inside them and then assembled them again and obviously the the main point for us was that it's really easy for anybody, regardless of their skill set, to take these things apart, put them back together. It doesn't or shouldn't require any sort of specialization or, or special tools. But also it was an opportunity for us to teach the children a little bit about electronics and that you shouldn't be afraid of questioning what's inside of your products. How does it work? If I if I have this thing, how much of it do I own? Should I have the right to open things up and take things apart? Fairphone is an example of a modular product. It's a phone where you can open the back of it and all of the parts are modular so you can take out an individual part rather than having to replace the whole phone. And like if you need an upgrade, you can upgrade a part rather than the entire thing. Recently, a solar lamp has also been designed to be modular and completely repairable. What do you think about this direction in innovation and do you own anything modular? Um, I don't own anything modular, but it sounds quite interesting and probably very helpful, especially as, as a global society, we're kind of moving away from... Uh, our ability to continue manufacturing and producing goods to the extent that we're currently doing so well it might actually end up being a good move like for the rest of humanity if we're able to actually fix our own stuff fantastic that is exactly what we need it's totally against capitalism which means that they probably stop it happening (laughs) but um but i love it yeah let's have more why isn't it advertised i want to know more about it i don't own anything modular It would have to be simple enough that a technophobe like me could uh, achieve the task with a bit of guidance. The Fairphone was really an inspiration for this 
device. We've been following that project since it's launched and you know, I think for both some of the students here at the university, particularly in the School of Design, people who are actually trying to think about new products and materials, as well as for people who are social science researchers who are really interested in some of the challenges around consumer economies and what the implications are for things that are being built and designed. The Fairphone is a really inspirational project. And so what we tried to take from that was a challenge. How do we rebuild a solar lamp, a simple solar lamp that isn't as complicated as a mobile phone, but really tries to pay attention to the same kinds of questions. So where do the things come from? Where do the components come from? How is it possible for it to be repaired and be kept in use for as long as possible? At the moment, we're in an odd position. We've designed and built a small scale technology, which we think does something quite different from many of the other devices that are already available but we don't have the financial resources to mass produce them currently the funding that we've had available until now has been supported by uk research councils through some of their funding that's intended to accelerate the impact of academic research so we've had the benefit of funding from inside the university of edinburgh that's helped us to do that we haven't had any external or private investment in this project so far on the one hand we have something that we'd like to make as widely available as possible we'd like to use the objects that we've built and designed to put push solar manufacturers and the solar industry as far as possible to really take seriously the challenge of designing for disassembly and designing for repairability. So we're left with a few different options. Either we license our technology to another manufacturer who could invest in it and produce it and make it more widely available. We can make it available ourselves, open source. We can put the designs online for people to download and produce wherever they want. Or we can try and secure some kind of funding ourselves to actually mass produce it under the terms and conditions that we think are appropriate. And at the moment, we're not quite sure which of those options or which combination of those options might be most appropriate and what kind of decisions we could make that would allow us to disrupt existing design practices in this industry without compromising on some of the principles that underpin this project. The SolarWatt is a vehicle for telling a better story about why things should be built to be repaired in the developing world. And that's what it's purposes at restart we have a a solar device hall of shame on our pinterest products proclaiming to be green but they are simply designed not to be serviced or repaired they are essentially the worst kind of throwaway product is there any model of solar lamp that you can think of that should definitely be a part of that pinterest board the thing that i'd like to actually donate to the pinterest board is that object that's in the british museum the 100th object this green solar lamp built by D-Light. That, for me, was the embodiment of some of those unsustainable design principles. You know, it was built not to be opened. The company that made it argued that it's durable. If you drop it, it won't break, etc., etc. But that also means that it can't be fixed. So it's a classic object that really reveals the paradox between how difficult it is to do something that's really good and also do something that challenges our existing consumer economy. There's a lot of acceptance around solar energy. However, there's little awareness of the potential implications of solar waste. What's the expected lifetime of solar what? And also, how is it to be disposed of once it reaches its end of life? Current estimates suggest that the electronic waste from the off-grid solar industry is equivalent to electronic waste from the mobile phone industry, which seems like a bit of a 
shocking statistic to me. And even if those waste flows look quite marginal in comparison to the larger waste flows from all kinds of other electronic devices, the comparative size and scale of off-grid solar technologies vis-a-vis a small mobile phone, putting those things alongside each other, I think is, is really shocking, precisely because we are just primed to think about the solar industry as clean, green, sustainable, better. But solar technologies are microelectronic technologies. The same kinds of manufacturing lines, processes, that are involved in the production of most of our electronic goods are really at the heart of the production of small solar-powered lighting systems and bigger off-grid lighting systems too, and bigger solar systems. So putting those two things together, I think, is really important. SolarWatt is intended to stay in circulation for as long as possible. So we take seriously the challenge of actually reusing the bits for as, as long as possible. So there are different layers to it. The first thing that is likely to go or to need replacing is the battery. So we've designed that to be really easily replaceable. The second thing which is likely to break or to need replacing is the switch so equally we've designed that precisely to be repairable and replaceable then it's highly likely that some elements of the circuit board will also need attending to all of the components on the circuit board are actually labeled on the circuit board so you can clearly establish what each of those pieces are the layout has been designed to make the things that are more likely to break first more easy to access in places that can be easily repaired and on the circuit board itself is a link to a website with repair instructions in terms of the stuff itself there are two kinds of plastics here in the case itself a black plastic on the bottom and a kind of transparent plastic on the top at the moment these two plastics aren't made from recycled materials these are new plastics partly that's because of the prototyping process that we've had to go through here and because we've made these in such a low quantity it's been virtually impossible to actually get anyone to supply us with a recycled plastic in order for us to make them at that low quantity. Secondly, because we discovered it's actually quite difficult to produce a transparent material from a recycled plastic. So ultimately, we expect that the bottom bit will be made from a recycled plastic and the top bit won't be. Each of these pieces are going to be labelled so that they can be easily separated and recycled. In terms of the lifetime itself, these things have only been in existence for a month. I suppose in some ways, we don't know how long they might be kept working. That's contingent on the ways in which people are actually able to keep them working but there's no reason really why these components themselves couldn't continue to be in circulation and in use for a very long time and that's how they've been put together clearly solar products need to have repairability and durability at their core jamie's work represents the importance of understanding the technology around us and the huge implications that product design can have on people's lives when we in the global north push for our right to repair we have to make sure that we are thinking about this right as a global right As Jamie highlights, for people without access to electricity, obstacles to repairing technology have a real human cost. We have to think about both the local and the global when we are looking for solutions to these issues. We need to push for grassroots movements, NGOs and governments to work together towards the goal of creating technology which can be repaired, which lasts and is designed with the conditions of its use in mind. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. 
As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. Big thanks to Restart's communications assistant, Isabel, who did the research and planning for this episode. It's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.